they didn't talk about sexual abuse. So when an older man coaxed her away from her paper dolls one afternoon and fondled her, she felt she had to keep this dirty secret to herself. And so it had a real negative impact in her soul. She didn't tell anyone about the incident until she was engaged to her future husband, John. And of course, he was upset that this had ever happened. He was quite enraged. He wanted to, you know, beat up the person. But she told him, listen, don't, don't go down that track. It's not a healthy place to go. What she did not tell John, though, was that every time she was exposed to some sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know negative, pornographic, sleazy experience, the flashback would come back to her. And so one afternoon after her and John were married, he was just kind of walking through the drugstore. And he was just pointing out with this disgust, you know, look at these magazines, you know, kids are exposed to this stuff. And of course, it's a lot of pornography. And uh, immediately she was having a flashback. And so she walked to another part of the drugstore and pretended that she was kind of focusing in on some product there. And all of a sudden she sensed with absolute power and authority in her innermost being, God's voice. And he spoke to her and he said, you will never relive this feeling again. What a powerful statement. And she thought, if this is truly God, I will never have this experience again. And you know, it was God's voice. And from that point on, she was delivered from that. But one of the things that she shares later on is that one of the reasons why I had never thought to go to God was I always felt tainted. I felt this was an unholy experience. How could I come to a holy God with this negative experience in my life? She just felt embarrassed about it, let alone talk to some other person about it. She had just tried to suppress her emotions. And obviously, it wasn't working. You know, so often in our lives... You know, we have situations, painful things happen in our lives, and then we have to deal with the emotional fallout of these experiences. You know, you know I, I just write in a broken world, painful things happen to people. Isn't that true? And the longer you live, you accumulate those experiences over time, and they do have an impact in your innermost being. And what, it, what is tragic is the aftermath. You know, how do we handle these experiences? How do we handle... Um, you know, hurt in our life or frustration or rejection or even, an, you know, an unhealthy infatuation or anger or loss, just to name a few of the emotions. There's so many emotions out there. And we have these experiences, then all of a sudden we have these emotions. And what do we do with these emotions? And oftentimes um, they begin to define us. The, our emotional makeup begins to affect who we are and how we think about ourselves. And so the question uh, I want to raise tonight is the fact that because God created us in his image, do you realize God has emotions? And uh, so th the thought occurred to me, if we learn how God handles his emotions, I have a funny feeling we're going to learn how to handle our emotions. We can learn from someone who has them and knows how to handle them well. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, uh, do you realize that and I know some theologians get the idea that God is, you know, unaffected by humanity. Now, that's one school of thinking. But I think God chooses to be affected by humanity because he's so integrated into his created world. And he's so concerned about you and I. It's like being a parent. We're different than, um, than our children. And yet, when they hurt, we begin to hurt. It's just, there's a, a tremendous sense of empathy. And then there's times in our lives that we can become frustrated with people that we love because we can see that they're making a bad decision. And we know that the outcome of that decision is not 
going to be good for them. And so we begin to get deeply concerned or disappointed or frustrated by people's choices. And I, I just put down, just because God loves us doesn't mean we don't hurt or disappoint him. We actually impact the heart of God, and we'll see that through the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the people that we love the most have the greatest impact on us. And they can have the greatest negative impact on our lives. They can actually hurt us the most. Isn't that the truth? You know, if some stranger makes an offhanded comment, you just brush it off and go, you know, the person's a jerk, right? You know, that's kind of what you think. You know, who is this person making this comment? But when someone you deeply love says something that's painful, boy, that goes right into our innermost being. And we have to deal with that. And we have to deal with those emotions that come as a result of that. And so knowing how often we fail God, how does he handle his disappointments with us? How does he handle his emotions? And so a number of years ago, I was reading uh, Eugene Peterson's message. That was my devotional Bible that year. Sometimes I like to change translations just so I can see things a little differently. And I was reading through the book of Ezekiel, and I noticed this amazing text. And, you know, I've looked at it since, but I believe that the way he structures it really brought this idea home to me. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the history of Israel, God's covenant people, those that were in relationship with him, was one of absolute failure. You know, every time I read through the Old Testament, it's amazing how often, you know, the Israelites messed up. You know, they would do good, things would get good, then they would forget God, pretty soon they would begin to embrace the value system of the nations around them, begin to worship their gods, there was a lot of syncretistic behavior going on, and, uh, you know, in the midst of a good, good life, affluence, blessing, forget God, then all of a sudden, you know... God would allow the consequences of their sin to begin to impact their lives. And the next thing you know, nations would come and dominate them, and they would become oppressed. They'd be in slavery. You know, we can see this pattern even in our own lives today. You know, people go out. They're having a great time. They're partying. You know, they they don't mean to do this. They're just out to have a good time. And pretty soon they get addicted to some of the, you know, drugs or alcohol. They become, you know, abusing, abusing these things. And then next thing you know, they become a slave to this. And no longer it's a good time. Now. Now they're in trouble. And we see this pattern recurring over and over again in people's lives. Isn't that true? You know, and the people who are the addicts, they're not having fun anymore, folks. I just want you to know that. They're in trouble. They're, 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 they're having a difficulty now. They need God's deliverance. And it's just a pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. Now, the book of Ezekiel, just to give us a background before we read our text here in chapter 20, Ezekiel is actually a prophet who's living during the Babylonian exile. And he's a contemporary with another prophet named Jeremiah. So when we read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who comes to conquer Jerusalem, usually if we're not aware of it, it's actually, it's not just one experience. You see, Babylon conquers Jerusalem but does not destroy it. What he does is he deposes the king, brings him into exile, takes the leadership of the land, brings them into exile, but he sets up a a hand-picked puppet government, and now they are to run the country of Israel. And eventually that king rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and eventually he does come and destroys the city. But now we have Ezekiel, who's in captivity there in Babylon. We have Jeremiah still stuck in Jerusalem. So these are God's spokespeople in these two contexts where his people are at. Is everybody following the story? So now the people in exile, are hearing reports from their relatives, I'm sure, you know, people are connected, right? They're getting messages across, and they're telling them, 
you know, they're hearing about what's happening in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem are going, this is a temporary setback. God's going to restore what we've lost. And how many know everybody likes to hear good news and not bad news? Isn't that the truth? Don't you guys all want to hear good news? Isn't it kind of a bummer when, you know, you're going to get bad news and you don't want to hear it? You know, and that's exactly what Jeremiah and Ezekiel are doing. What they're basically saying is, look, you guys have not really addressed the issue of why we're in exile. The problem is we turned our backs on God. We violated this covenant relationship with God. We were unfaithful and we are idolaters, you know, and this is the outcome of what's happening. And no, God is not just going to look you know, a year or two down the road and restore everything back. No, this is going to be, as Jeremiah said, a 70-year exile. A whole generation or, or two are going to experience this exile. How many know that's not a popular message? And the majority of prophets in Jerusalem were saying the exact opposite. And this was filtering over to the exiles in Babylon. And, uh, you know, and so... Ezekiel's writing back and said, settle in, build your houses, you're going to be here for a while. He's on the same page as Jeremiah. Why? Because they're hearing from God. They are God's true spokespeople, okay? So now, these exiles come to Ezekiel. They're going to inquire of God through Ezekiel. And what they hear is not what they expected and not what they wanted to hear. Isn't that a drag when uh, people tell you things you don't want to hear? That's not what I wanted to hear. But Ezekiel tells them. And he knows their condition. So what he does is he begins to outline their history as a nation and all the times they messed up. And here's, this is, I'm giving you the background. Now we're in chapter 20 and this is what he said. At that time I told them, get rid of all the vile things that you've become addicted to. That's an interesting statement. That's kind of contemporizing the language for us. Isn't that true that, you know, that's what happens with us. We, get, we allow things to become central in our lives that shouldn't be central. And we can become addicted to these things. And he's saying that's what idols are. That's what idolatry is. Is when God is not at the center of our lives and we're letting something else be at the center of our life, that becomes an idol. And eventually we become addicted to that lifestyle, that way of thinking, that way of living. He says, get rid of that. He says, don't make yourselves filthy with the Egyptian no-God idols. He just basically says, they're not gods. They're just, you know, they're worshiping nothing. These, they don't have any life. This is, this is not going to produce life for you. It's actually going to produce death to you. He says, I alone am God, your God. But they rebelled against me. They wouldn't listen to the word I said. Not, none of them got rid of the vile things that they were addicted to. They held on to the no gods of Egypt as if for dear life. I seriously considered, now God speaking, I seriously considered inflicting my anger on them in force right there in Egypt. He's back in the day when he's leading them out of Egypt. But how many know these guys had been in Egypt for so long as slaves that they had actually begun to embrace some of the idolatry of the Egyptians. And there's a little statement, you know, Israel came out of Egypt, but Egypt didn't come out of Israel. They were still locked into a worldview and a a way of thinking about life that was wrong. That's why they had problems in the wilderness. God was trying to help them shed all that garbage in their lives. Isn't that true too? As Christians, we come to Christ and sometimes we have vestiges of the old life life within us. And we have to shed those things in our life so we can move forward. God wants us to put those things aside. God wants us to throw those things off, to lay them down. And he's given us the Holy Spirit so we have the power to do that. And then God says this. I love this. Then I thought better of it. And I acted out of who I was, not by how I felt. Now, 
That's not underlined in that Bible. That's me underlining that statement because that's the core of my text. Basically, what I'm saying is God says this. This is how I felt about it, but this is how I acted. And what God felt and what God did are two different things. But so often in our lives, isn't it true that what we do is act out of how we feel? Anybody have that experience? Have you ever acted out of how you felt? Rather than really thinking through, maybe this isn't the best response to the situation. So, you know, what I'm going to try to do is explain to you, the emotions are real. It's not, that's not the problem. The problems are not with our emotions. It's what we do with our emotions that determine if they're going to be healthy or unhealthy. And so, my prayer tonight is that we were going to understand how to you know, basically manage our emotions so that we can make good, healthy decisions. Anybody up for that kind of a thing? How would you like to actually, you know, be able to address your emotional makeup so that, you know, without, you know, causing grief to yourself? And we'll talk a little bit about this. He says here, I didn't act out of who, uh, you know, I acted out of who I was, not how I felt. I acted in a way that would evoke honor and not blasphemy from the nations around them. Nations who had seen me reveal myself by promising to lead my people out of Egypt. And then I did it. I led them out of Egypt into the desert. You know what God said? What I wanted to do was punish them, discipline them. But I didn't do that. Instead of doing a negative towards them, I blessed them. Instead of cursing them, I blessed them. Instead of disciplining them, I honored them. I I did for them what they needed of me, not what they deserved. Aren't you glad God does not treat us many times the way we deserve? He treats us based on our need, not based on what we deserve. And that's exactly what happens to the Israelites. He didn't deal with them according to how he felt. His decision was based on his character rather than his emotions. That does not mean that God denied that he had these emotions in their lives. So uh, we are living in a time, I believe, as a culture, that we are very emotionally driven. You know, we have these, what do you call emotes or whatever? What's that? Emoticons, you know, we're all texting with emoticons, you know, this is a highly emotionally driven culture. And a lot of times, you know, Patty and I will be talking, Patty's my wife, we're chatting, and uh, she'll go, why are they doing that? And I'm going, that's because they're not thinking. Because if you really thought about what you're doing, you wouldn't be doing that. They're just acting out of emotion. And I notice that more and more people are doing more and more acting out of emotion. They're not making wise decisions. And they don't recognize that there's consequences to those choices. And then there are other people who suppress their emotions. They know that this emotion is wrong, and so they jam it. They repress themselves, and they're walking around repressed until finally one day a triggering event happens, and they they all of a sudden do something totally uncharacteristic. And everyone goes, I wonder why they did that. I wonder why they exploded like that. I wonder what set them off. Well, it's because they didn't process their emotions correctly. So let's take a look at how God deals with himself. How does he handle his emotions? How does he manage his emotions? And what can we learn from him? And I think there's basically three things we can do with our emotions. First of all, we can express them. You know, or we can express them in a healthy way or we can express them in unhealthy ways. The second thing is, you know, we can suppress them or finally, we can address them. In other words, we can acknowledge that we have these emotions, but how are we going to handle them? So let's take a look at these, uh, these ways of handling our emotions. So what's the first thing we discover is that God does not... Um, well, I just want to say this, that our emotions are a part of who we are. Okay, so that's, that's normal. We all have emotions. 
But they should never determine or define who we are. That's not who we're going to be. You know, my emotions are not going to define my decisions. That's what I'm getting at. I'm going I'm to evaluate my emotions. I'm going to come honest. I'm going to be honest that I have these emotions, but I want to deal with them in the right way. And some people, they just let their emotions define their whole life. And you can see that, and they cause a lot of grief. So what are the three things we discover about how, how God handles his emotions? And the first one is that God does not suppress his emotions. In other words, God is going to be realistic. He's going to tell you how he feels. Isn't that neat? God is honest. He's honest about how he feels. And I think it's okay to be honest about how we feel. You know, and I think we just have to tell, you know, the one person I know we can trust is God. A lot of times I'll tell God, this is how I feel. I'm telling God. He goes, I already know that. I already know you feel that way. Good, we're having a conversation. At least I'm being honest with myself. This is how I feel. So he's not, and God does that. He doesn't deny that he has these feelings. In the book of Genesis, we recognize that God was upset. He was upset with humanity because the fact that he gave us free will, we made bad choices. And we read in the book of Genesis, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's a pretty strong statement. In other words, he's saying it was, it was so bad that he says they weren't even thinking correctly. It was just like they were always thinking about things that were ungodly and polluted and corrupt. And, you know, how many know if that's where your mind is at? Eventually, that's where your behavior is going to be at. And the culture was experiencing tremendous moral deterioration. And God was, God was upset. God was frustrated. God was experiencing emotion in the situation. Matter of fact, it says in Genesis 6, 6, it says the Lord was grieved. How many know that's an emotion? emotion? Grieving. How many have ever grieved? That's pain, folks. You're experiencing grief. He was grieving. He was grieving the loss of what he, what he wanted from humanity, which was godly people, loving people, people in relationship with him, but people had turned their backs on him and were doing these crazy things. And then it says, he was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. He was experiencing emotional pain. Wow, this is God. That amazing thought. God was allowing himself to be affected by our behavior. And isn't that true? We are affected by other people's behavior. Um, God was, was, you know, I, I say these are emotional descriptions. God was angry with people. Uh, and if God is angry and he does not sin, that tells me that anger is not a sinful emotion. That's a shocking statement. L- let me ask you another question. How many here, when you hear the word anger, do you, th- you see that as a positive emotion or a negative emotion? How many see it as a negative emotion? Anger. Okay. Yeah. But you know, I think we're confused. I'm going to explain a little distinction for you because I think actually anger is good. That sounds strange. I, I'm just shocking you on purpose because, I, because the Bible says here in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. So obviously anger is not sin. It's how you use anger. It's how you're going to respond to that emotion determines whether you sin or not. He says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Mm, you got to deal with this anger. Now, I think there are some things that we need to be angry about. I'm going to argue tonight that there are times when we are not angry and it is a sin. That's right. I'm, I think about this. We're not angry. What are we? If we're not angry, then we're apathetic. You know, ap- pathos in Greek is the word emotion. 
right? You don't have any passion. Pathos is passion. You don't have any emotion. He says, apathetic. God said to the Laodiceans, you guys are apathetic. <laughs> you guys have no passion. You guys are lukewarm. You, 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 you're, you're not, there's no passion in your life. You're indifferent. And when we see injustice, you see, usually we get angry because somebody's done something to us or we feel entitled and we're not getting something. We get angry about that. See, that's the wrong thing to get angry about. But what about getting angry when we see injustice done to someone? And then we're just indifferent. We just, we just you know, like, oh, well, that's too bad. Sorry, you know. No, God wants us to be like him. God is a defender of the weak and the helpless and the oppressed. You know, I'll be honest, I'm angry about the way our culture is treating our children. I'm angry about it. I'm upset. I I feel like, you know, some of the things that are going on in our culture right now, I feel like children are vulnerable and someone has to protect them. And I believe that adults, we should be protecting children. And yet in this culture, I see a lot of decisions made to take advantage of children. And then I see the other extreme, which is, you know, uh, children-centered homes, which I think is a terrible mistake. I think it's unhealthy. I think we should have parent-centered homes where children learn that it's not, the world does not center around them, that they have to grow up in a world and it's not all about them, and so they don't grow up to be self-centered and selfish people. We have a ton of narcissistic people in this culture. They're totally self-centered and self-absorbed, and parents are creating that. Every time they whine, the parent does what they want them to do. That is unhealthy. We don't have the guts to say no to things. Even though you may have the resources to do things for children, sometimes you just don't do it because it's not good for them. But we don't have the, you know, the fortitude, the moral fortitude to do what's right for children. So I get upset about that. And rightfully so, because I feel like these children now never have a hope. They're not exposed to the good things of God. You know, a lot of times, as parents, we make wrong decisions. I've seen it. I've been a pastor for 35 years where we've put other things like, you know, sports or other things ahead of the things of God. And later on, the parents come back crying because the kids have no relationship with God. Well, that's the parents' fault. The parents should have put Christ first in their lives. It should have been modeled in the home so that the children grew up and said the most normal, natural thing in the world is to know Christ. And the thing that is celebrated in our lives is that we know Christ. Okay. Boy, you say, Pastor, you got a little feisty. Well, I think that, you know what? One of the problems in our culture is we're not feisty enough. As Christians, we're quite dormant and passive. You know, we just let people do things. And I think, wow, that's a mistake says be angry so what what happens well let's let's take a look at this anger thing um neil clark warned in his book make anger your ally harnessing our most baffling emotion so what does he say he says anger is a physical state of readiness and when we are angry we're prepared to act physiologically that's what happens with us in our bodies what happens is this, more adrenaline is secreted, more sugar is released, our heartbeat rates faster, uh, beats faster, our blood pressure rises, the pupil of our eyes open wide. We are in high alert. Anger is simply preparedness and power. And then he goes on to say, the term anger often has negative com- connotations in people's minds, which it did here, right? That's because it's oftenly mistaken and linked to aggression. It's aggression, aggressive behavior, that's the problem. He goes on to say, aggressiveness or aggression is a behavior 
and is intended to threaten or injure the security or self-esteem of the victim. It's meant to go against, to assault, to attack another person. So a lot of times we see the emotion of anger, but then we, we become aggressive. And what it is is we're using that to manipulate and to destroy a person both emotionally, even physically, if we have the strength. But usually, we do it verbally, and we, what we do is we do tremendous damage to people. Listen, we need to learn how to speak the truth in love. Amen. You know, a lot of times we get upset with someone about a specific thing, and what do we do? We tend to terrorize that poor person as if they are the worst person on the planet. Here's what we need to know. A lot of times what we're upset about is a behavior. You know, here are like 10 beautiful behaviors in this person's life, and here's one negative behavior, and we just go ballistic over that person. How many think that's probably not the best way to approach the problem? Maybe what we need to do is call a timeout. You know, I used to say this to parents. You know, the best thing you need to do when your child does something wrong is call a timeout, send them to the room, because you need the timeout as a parent, not the kid. You need to get your head in straight because a lot of times when we're correcting people, we're angry. And when you correct people when you're angry, you don't do it right. You say a lot of devastatingly, emotionally devastating things. You know, what we need to do is figure out, okay, what did they do wrong? What's the behavior that needs to be corrected? And how do I get myself under control so that I'm no longer angry about it? I've thought it through. I realize this is what needs to be addressed and I need to do it in a loving way. I need to go in there and say, listen, you know what? You are an amazing person. I could, I'll just practice on Roger. Roger, you're an amazing person. These are all these wonderful things. These are things I really appreciate about you. But you know what I noticed? There's one thing that I can see that's really detrimental in your life, and it's hurting you, and it's affecting how you relate to other people. Here's what I notice, and I know that you're probably not even aware of it, or if you are, you're probably struggling with it. I want you to know I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to try to help you overcome that area in your life. How many all of a sudden feel like, yes, I'm addressing the issue, but I'm actually doing it in a loving way? And you know, the person is more prone to respond to that than they feel like they just had a strip torn off their, their hide, right? And that they feel like a worthless human being and a piece of junk. And isn't that the problem? Isn't that how we treat people? But God doesn't do it that way. God says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Hmm. Listen to this. Some people, though, when they get angry, they think, well, that's a negative emotion, and I'm upset about something, or I'm, I'm hurt, or whatever, and what I do is I repress my emotions. I know it's not right for me to do anything or say anything, so I just shove it down. And you know what happens? And I know this for a fact. I took a, a course from a medical doctor on, the, on depression. And a lot of depression today is internalized anger. And I'm not saying all depression is that. But a lot of depression, a lot of people are depressed today. They're just internally angry. And so what do we do in our cultures? We go to the doctor and what does he do? He writes out a prescription and so we get drugged. And that's how we're coping with this pain inside of our soul. And can I just say something? I'm not even saying it's necessarily wrong even to take the drugs. I'm not going to argue that point because sometimes we need it to get our chemicals back in order. But here's the problem. What was the root issue? And have we ever addressed it? Have we ever identified why am I so angry on the inside? Maybe I was violated as a person. Maybe I was unjustly treated. Maybe I was put down. Maybe I just felt I had no power as a powerless person. And so I stuffed all of these negative emotions inside of me and I'm walking as a depressed person. Can I just tell you something? God wants to heal you tonight. God wants to set you free tonight. 
He wants you to get in touch with those places in your life that there's brokenness there so he can bring healing in that situation. You know, he, you can actually get in touch and say, you know what, I have to admit, I am angry. I am upset. I feel victimized. I, I need to identify what's going on on the inside. I need to bring it to the light. I need to stop repressing my emotions and be honest with myself and say, this is how I truly feel about this. But then how do I handle those powerful emotions now swirling about me? And that's why I want to get to the next couple of points. But here, God in his anger, you know, he, he, felt, he felt, you know, God was being neglected. God was angry with the people. But he had decided, you know, how to treat these people who were treating him poorly, who were treating him unjustly. Listen to what Charles Feinberg says uh, regarding God's response to Israel You know, instead of destroying them, this is what he does. When God could find no basis in them for extending to them his mercy and grace, he did it solely for his namesake, that is, for his own glory. In other words, God says, even though you deserve this, I'm going to treat you like that, because even though I feel like this, I'm going to behave like this. You know, if God had poured out his wrath on his people, though they warranted such actions by their multiplied transgressions against him, the heathen could well have concluded, according to their reasonings, that God was enabled to deliver his nation from their enemies. So God says, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to show them my grace. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's amazing. Isn't that kind of what God does all the time, you know? When God looked at what we have done on earth and how we have treated him and how we have treated others, what did he do about it? He was angry about it, but then he came down and died on a cross. He took the punishment on himself. Is that an amazing thought? And extended forgiveness to us. Now, God acted, but not in the way we would think. And that's why God says to us, when he tells us, when someone injures us, what are we to do? We're to forgive them. And when Jesus was being crucified, what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You see, you know, how do you overcome evil? You do good. And he himself practiced what he's communicating to us. You know, I love this story because this, this little incident in Ezekiel gave me an insight into the story happening in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 32, remember the Israelites, Moses had gone up. He'd been away for six weeks, 40 days of six weeks. Where's this guy gone? You know, we got to get some gods here. We got to, you know, we got to move forward in life. They got impatient, you know. Where's this Moses? He's just disappeared, you know. And so Aaron, you know, coughs up all of this jewelry and they make these golden idols, the golden calf story. How many know that story? Exodus 32. And now God says to Moses, hey, here I am working at making this covenant relationship with you and these guys are down there prostituting themselves. They're unfaithful to me. How many think that's pretty amazing, you know? It's like, you know, I'm gonna get married to this person but they're cheating on me. How many think that's kind of a nasty experience? God's having this experience with his own people. So he says, go down there. I'm going to destroy these guys. Moses now is pleading. Look at verse 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. And then it says in verse 14, then the Lord relented. Now, when I read that story, how many, it almost sounds like Moses is really calm and he's able to calm down this angry God and say, God, please. You know, It almost seems like Moses is more merciful than God is. Doesn't that kind of give you that picture? Doesn't it? How many can relate to what I'm saying? It almost seems like Moses is nicer than God. Can I tell you something? I'm convinced that Ezekiel 20 is the 
understanding of uh, Exodus 32. I think what's going on is God had determined, this is how I feel. I'm dealing with my emotions. I feel very upset about this, but I'm not going to act this way. Where do you think Moses came up with this idea? From God. Where do you think Moses came up with this idea that he could talk to God this way and God would give in to him? From God. I believe this story is to teach us a lesson. It's to reveal to us how merciful our God is. When we deserve to be judged, God shows us mercy. I believe the whole story, I think God is far more merciful than Moses ever thought of being. Okay? So I see it a little differently. Okay. Let me move on to the second thing about God's emotions. God does not express his emotions apart from his character. I love that. In other words, he doesn't react to things. He responds to things. He doesn't let the emotion define what he's going to do. And boy, that takes a lot of grace. That means I have to be controlled by someone greater than myself. You know one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control, right? So if I'm, under, if I'm full of the Spirit, I'm not going to be out of control. And we're going to see that in a minute. The story is told of a talkative woman who once tried to justify her critical attitude towards others. You know, she just kept making nasty, critical remarks. And to which she says to Billy Sunday, who was a very famous evangelist, she says, you know, it always does pass quickly. And Billy Sunday answers back, yeah, so does the shotgun blast. You know, in other words, you know, we can say things, but then it has hugely devastating consequences. So we have to watch what we're saying. Here we find God communicating through his prophet how he felt about what was transpiring. He didn't act out of his emotions, but neither did he repress them. He shares them with us. This is how I feel. This is what I'm going to do. Wow. God, why does God communicate his displeasure? Well, I think it's because he's warning us that our sin will be destructive to ourselves and to others. That's what displeases God. You know why God is against me sinning? Because he knows it's going to wreck my life. Why is against, you know, God, against me sinning? Why is God against that? Because it's going to affect other people in a negative way. And he knows that. So he's opposed to that. You know, he's not, God's not trying to destroy our lives and make our life all miserable. No, he's trying to protect us. You know, when Israel had demonstrated... You know, when had she demonstrated idolatry in the wilderness? Well, we've looked at it in chapter 32. You know, what the problem is, what drove these people to embrace idols? Isn't that a great question? Because, you know, we look at the story and go, what's wrong with these guys? (laughs) Haven't you read that? You know, the ten great plagues, God leads them out, and immediately they're creating idols in the wilderness. And not only that, they're attributing the idols as if they're God. They're calling him Yahweh, you know? I I wrote down a couple things in my mind. First of all, what is idolatry? Well, you know what idolatry is? Is when I embrace the culture of the society around me. That's idolatry. Is there a pressure in our world today to embrace the value system of the culture around us? We are being bombarded with that every single day. It's so difficult to live a distinctly different mindset than the culture around us. Is that not true? And yet the Bible teaches me that I need to be a person who's meditating on God's word day and night. I need to have a certain frame of reference. So I do not become like the culture. Because the culture is idolatrous. What do you mean it's idolatrous, Pastor? It means that God is not in the equation for them. And they're living as if there is no God. And they're making decisions and values based on the the fact that God doesn't exist. Okay? That's idolatry. But here's the shocker. As Christians... When I have a distorted understanding of who God is, isn't that idolatry? 
Isn't that what these guys did? Isn't that what they were doing when they were making those calves? They said, this is Yahweh who led us out of Egypt. And when you and I have a distorted understanding as to the nature of God, aren't we committing idolatry? Aren't we attributing to God something he's not? And don't Christians do that all the time? Well, this is what God is like. And what we mean is, I'm like this, therefore God must be like me. Can I tell you, God is not like us. And so we need to go back to the word of God and stop trying to make God conform in our image. This is how I would do things. This is how I would see it. This is how I would handle a situation. Yeah, but we're shaped by the culture, folks. God thinks other than the way our culture thinks. And you and I need to allow his thinking to shape us so that we now come into the very image of who God is. And that's what transforms our lives. That's what makes us a distinctly different people. Mm, Wow. How do you know God's anger was justified? Then that says the Lord said to Moses, go down there because your people, God says, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want these guys. Your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Idolatry corrupts us. Not only does it corrupt us, it says when Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. Wow, strong language. Do you know what happens when sin is in control of our lives? We lose control. That's what addiction is all about. You know, and what does our culture say when people are addicted? Oh, it's just, it's a sickness. They can't help themselves. That's their answer to the problem. I'm saying, no, it's a sin. And we've allowed ourselves to become corrupted because we've taken God out of the equation. And just to give you a sense of that, you know, this past few weeks, I was just meditating on Romans chapter one. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1, he said, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, you know, when you're studying the Old Testament, that's what I'm, I'm actually doing. I'm studying. I'm, I'm actually doing a concentration in Old Testament studies. You know this, this paradigm between wise wisdom, the wise person is one. If you want to gain wisdom, you have to fear God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So there's a contrast between the wise person who fears God and the fool who does not fear God. The fool is not somebody who's stupid. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. This is a person who doesn't know God. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that because in Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the foolish person is actually the person who takes God out of the equation. And what the result is, is this corruption that comes into life. Listen when he goes, he says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. The, you know, the first step away from God in a culture is it becomes secularized. Is this not a secular culture? Isn't God been abandoned in our culture? Of course it has. And then it goes on and says, it gets worse than that. Eventually it says, then they became, they made images to, to look like birds, animals, and reptiles. Are we not even getting there now with the worship of Mother Earth today? Isn't that the new movement in our culture? To, to make the earth itself what we worship. We're now worshiping the created rather than the creator. And therefore it says, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies one with another. Is not this culture becoming more sexually promiscuous all the time? Yes. What am I saying? Take God out of the equation. You're corrupted. 
That's exactly what we're witnessing. But what happens when God's spirit is in control of our lives? But the fruit or the result of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Therefore, I cannot say, I just couldn't help myself. My emotions got the best of me. All you're telling me is that you're not controlled by the spirit. You're controlled by your human emotions. Now, I've already said you can't suppress them, right? You have to acknowledge them. That's healthy. You have to admit that they're there. So how does God address his emotions, which is the third point? Well, we know he doesn't suppress them because we know he tells us how he feels. But then God says, I don't act based on how I feel. I act based on who I am. I do the right thing even though I don't feel like doing the right thing. You know, somebody says, I don't want to do that, Pastor. I don't feel it. I'm going, yeah, but it's the right thing to do. I'll, I'll tell you this. If you only go by your feelings, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions in life. You will, guaranteed. Well, you know, this is what I felt. I'm going, so what? It's still wrong. I don't care. You know, it can't be wrong, Pastor, when it feels so right. You're deceiving yourself. That's all you're doing. You're letting your emotions define what you're going to do. God says, I acted out of who I was, not how I felt. So, how can we address our emotions in a healthy, biblical way towards others? I love this. Well, first of all, I think we need to go to the Psalms. I read the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Because the Psalms tells me a lot about how we can emotionally address situations in our lives. Now listen to the various situations the psalmist finds himself in. How many have ever felt frustrated and disappointed and even upset that God wasn't helping at this moment? And you kind of even wonder where God was. Anybody have that emotion? Okay, that's reflected in the psalm. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, it's okay to say, God, I'm really disappointed. I just, I just want to know, where are you? My life's falling apart and you just don't seem to be there. Do you even care? It's really good to talk to God and tell him how you feel. Stop pretending. Oh, I'm so pious. I never get upset. I'm never frustrated. I never feel disappointment. Come on now. Be honest. You know, how about this one? You know, the Babylonians had just crushed the Israelites. So here's an Israelite prayer. Oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you've done for us. What's he saying? You've crushed us. Boy, I hope God gets you for that. Right? He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How many say that's pretty brutal? How many think, you know, a lot of Christians, we're embarrassed by this stuff. How do we defend this? That's how I feel. If I get a hold of that person, I just wring their neck. You've never had that emotion. You know? What's that? Just me. Yeah, I know. I'm the guinea pig for all of these experiences in life, you know? Always have these great emotions. Yeah. No, but you know what happens? So what he, sa- you know, he says, Ex- express how you feel to God. I'm so upset with that person. I cannot believe what they're doing, God. Why don't we be honest with God? This is how I feel. And then we, then we, remember, this is how I feel, but God says, I didn't act out of how I felt. So I acted out of who I am. So this is what God tells them to do. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Which city is that, by the way? Babylon. So God says, I want you to pray that it'll prosper. 
uh, excuse me, God, wait a minute, this sounds way too much like the New Testament for me. You know, this is almost like I have to, you know, forgive my enemies and pray that God will bless them. Do you mean I'm supposed to be doing that? Hey, this idea is in the Old Testament, folks. Same God. Listen to what Jesus said, but I tell you who, who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Isn't that kind of sound the same thing? You know, this is how I feel towards the Babylonians, but I know I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to do good to them. I'm going to pray for their prosperity. This is what Jesus says. Do good, love your enemies, do good to them who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. See, I feel this, God, but I'm going to behave this way. Have you ever done something like that where you're so frustrated with a person and you go, okay, I'm upset, frustrated, but I'm going to go over here and bless them anyways. Now you're behaving like God. You're not letting your emotions define your life. But you're not pretending you don't have those you know, feelings, which are justifiable, by the way. How do we address the emotional issues that cause us to struggle in our own personal despair? Anybody here ever, you know, you ever get to, how many have ever been discouraged in your life? Anybody ever been discouraged? Just a few of you. The rest of you, I don't know. You're amazing. You guys should be the preachers. I should be listening to you, you know. How do you do, how do you deal with that stuff? You need to learn how to talk to yourself. I'm serious. Do you guys ever talk to yourself? I'm going to tell you, you're not only allowed to talk to yourself, you're allowed to answer back. I'm going to prove this to you. You know, everybody says you can't do that. I'm going to prove them wrong. Right now, here's a verse of scripture, the psalmist. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? What's the psalmist doing? He's talking to himself. He goes, why are you so down? Then, why so disturbed within me? Then you talk to yourself. I've just said that. That's how I feel. The other side of me goes, put your hope in God. Yeah, but it's such a terrible time in my life. Things are not working out. Yeah, but God is so good. You know, in the long run, it's always, you have this little conversation. You go back and forth. You know, you get on the one side and say, this is how I feel. And then you take the other side and go, yeah, but God. See, we always do that for somebody else, right? We don't mind telling other people how to straighten up and feel right, right? You know, straighten up and fly right. But we need to do that to ourselves. We need to have a little talk with ourselves. It's true. And that's what the psalmist is doing. How many think this is pretty amazing? You know, how many here have ever felt discontented in life? Anybody ever felt a little discontentment? Oh, a few more hands are going up. Well, I must be talking to the right crowd tonight. I'm getting there. I knew I would finally hit on something. Here's another verse of scripture. You know, Paul says, I've learned the secret to be content. How many would like to learn the secret of contentment? I'm going to teach you tonight how to be content without changing your circumstances. How many want to know this? You don't have to change your circumstances. I'm going to help you learn to be content. How do you know that? It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. No matter how much I have, if I have little or if I have much, I've learned the secret of contentment. How many want to hear the secret? Anybody want to hear the secret? Here it comes. Philippians 4.13. Anybody ever? Who's got that memorized? Who's got that memorized? What is it? Yeah, but what is it? What's that? Come on. No, that's not. That's First, first Thessalonians. Come on. Philippians 4.13. Who gives me strength? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or gives me strength. That's the verse. What is he saying? He's saying, 
I can gain God's strength to handle whatever's brought my way. And that doesn't mean I'm defined by my circumstances. Yes! See, we love quoting that verse. You know, I can do all things. It's like, I can, you know, do the impossible. No, no, let's look at the context. The context is, I can change how I am experiencing my emotions. I don't have to allow my circumstances to define my level of contentment. How many think that's good? See, in our culture, we're trying to change the circumstances. That's what we're working on. That's what the culture works on. Oh, if we just gave people more education, more money, less taxes, more taxes, the government will tell you how to live. We'll take care of you. Whatever way, they're coming at it. I'm going, you can't control all the circumstances of life. I can't. I can only control my attitude through Christ who gives me the strength. Amen? (laughs) It's amazing. We can get really discontented. We can be living a very good life, very blessed life, and we're unhappy with what we got. I say, well, let me take some of these Canadians. I'll bring them to India with me. I'll leave them there for three months. I'll fix them. They'll come home. They'll be real happy with their circumstances. Come on now. You know, it's all relative, folks. I'm sitting on a beach in Vancouver on a vacation, on a beach in Vancouver, complaining to God, boy, he straightened me out in a hurry. That's right. So what are you whining about? You got a good life. You just started talking to me. I started reading scripture. God was really nailing me. I'm sorry, God. I'll stop whining. You know, it's about how we relate. Our emotions. Let me close. Cain and Abel. Right off the bat, we've got all these emotional issues, right? Abel offers to God. God accepts it. Cain offers his offering to God. God doesn't accept them. God notices there's a problem with Cain's attitude. Cain gets jealous of his brother because his offering was accepted. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I wrote, I'm writing my little notes here. That's why there's little brackets. That's not in the Bible. Unjustified emotion. I'm like, why are you upset? Why are you uptight? Right? Why is your face downcast? God's asking Cain. If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? In other words, you're doing something wrong, Cain. That's why I'm not accepting this. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. My question is, who is responsible for my emotions, God or me? Me. And in your case, me. And me and me. We, right? God is not responsible for your emotions. You are I'll take responsibility. God says, listen, you've got to deal with this emotional stuff. Okay? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Did Cain master his emotions? No, he got the best of them. And he sinned in a very devastating way. And he was punished for that. Okay. We're going to close with this. We have to address the attitudes in our lives. We have to address the emotions in our lives. So what emotion is God wanting to address? You know, here's what I'm going to say to us tonight. A lot of times we don't even realize why we do the things we do because we don't even realize we haven't addressed some of the issues in our hearts. We've either suppressed them. I told the story this morning, you know, I once bought a Vega. That's a General Motor product. It's a car. 
You know, and I was just getting out of high school. I had a choice between a Vega and a Camaro. I wanted to buy the Camaro, but my mother was shopping with me, and she goes, look, the Vega's brand new. It's $200 less. Got all of these warranties. And the Camaro's one-year-old is $200 more. I'm like, I really like the Camaro. We ended up buying the Vega. I bought the Vega. I had a lot of problems with that car, okay? It was not a good experience. But I had never addressed my emotional rawness and frustration with that vehicle. One day, a couple of years down the road, see, when you don't deal with your emotions and you repress them, something's going to happen. You gotta, it's it's going to come out. One day, my brother comes. My, I'm just, we're newlyweds. My brother and his wife, my wife and I, we're, we're heading off. I'm a Bible school student. I have no money. He goes, hey, let's go look at cars. I go, why? I can't get a car. He goes, yeah, but he's working. He says, let's just do it for the fun. This is something to do. I said, okay, we'll go look. And we ended up in this General Motors store, okay? That's what the company that sells Vegas. Anyways, we're there, and we're going along, and my brother's looking at vehicles, and the sales guy, you know, they're always, always friendly, always come out, and they're just, this guy is telling me how great General Motor cars are. And it was almost like he pulled off a scab, and he was hitting the wound. And the more he was telling me how great their cars were, I'm thinking, you guys sell junk, you know? Well, eventually, he hit one too many times, and I just, like, volcanoized. I was so upset, I just go... I don't want to hear this. And my brother and my wife are going, what in the world got over you? Like, you know, like I just like zapped this poor sales guy, you know, just told him he was working for a company that sells junk. They don't stand behind their stuff, all kinds of stuff. I was not very nice. Okay. They're pulling me out of there, you know, trying to get me away. You know, I had a lot to say and they're just like, come on, we're leaving. You know, they were embarrassed by my behavior. Later on, I was embarrassed by my behavior, but you know what? It was in there because I had suppressed those emotions. I had never dealt with that. I had never relinquished it. I had never forgiven, you know, even an institution. We have to sometimes forgive, right? Yeah. Otherwise, we're the ones that are going to suffer. So we're going to stand tonight. We're going to close our service. And here's what we're going to have someone come. Thanks, Mark. And we're going to just open our hearts today to God. Because, you know, when we were praying this morning, my prayer was simply this. God, I know that this area of emotions is so significant. And every last one of us in this room, we've had painful experiences. True? And as you get older, you get more of them. That's true. And you got to deal with them. And if we don't deal with our emotions in a healthy way, eventually our emotions begin to define our lives. And a lot of times we just make emotional decisions, and they're not always the best ones. So maybe we're here tonight and, you know, we don't even know what's really going on on the inside of us. We could have buried things. We wouldn't even know it exists. But I want you to do something right now. I want you just to bow your head, close your eyes for a minute. I want you to say this little prayer. God, search me and see if there be any, and it says in the Psalms, wicked way. But no, let's just say it this way. Search me and see if there's unresolved emotional issues in my soul. Help me, O God, to identify places of pain and sorrow and hurt in my life. And right now, as you're praying this prayer, I want you to, something's going to come to your mind. Maybe something's come right now. Things are coming to your mind right at this moment. I want you to say, okay, Jesus, this is how I feel right now. I feel wounded. I feel hurt. I feel disappointment. Whatever those emotions are, I think you need to just say to God, this is where I'm at. I want to just give you how I feel. I want to just express that to you right now. 
I want to just lay it at your feet. I want you to do a work in my heart tonight. I want you to help me to process this emotion in a healthy way. I don't want to be a captive to unforgiveness. I don't want to allow bitterness to ruin my life and the lives of others. I want to let go of these things. I want to walk in freedom tonight. I want to walk in forgiveness. And right now, as, you, as we're here, God has been speaking. You know, we've, we've laughed and I've told some stories, but you and I all have stories. I could have gone on. I could share way more stories. I'm a little older than some of you. And I've had lots of experience and I've had lots of disappointments. And you know, I've got to let these things go in order to be healthy. I want to be a healthy person. You know, that's why a lot of older people are so grumpy. They've never let go of all the pain in their life. You know, we wonder, why are they behaving like this? A lot of unresolved issues. I want you to let all that stuff go tonight. I want you to experience God's love and forgiveness. Okay? I'm going to pray for you right now. So, Father, I pray tonight that you who are faithful have spoken into our innermost being. You're identifying places of hurt and sorrow and places where we've been wounded and places where we've misbehaved, places where we've made poor decisions. I confess I've made many poor emotional decisions. I've allowed my emotions to get the best of me. And I have not behaved like you in those situations. And I ask you to forgive me. I pray tonight that you will cleanse us, not just me, all of us, that we'll be cleansed, we'll be free. Lord, so that we can be free to be honest with ourselves and say, yeah, that hurt and yeah, that's painful and that's not what I expected. But you know what? I don't want those emotions to be the defining choice in what I'm going to do. I want to behave like you. If somebody renders evil to me, I want to be more like you. I want to show good. I want to be forgiving. I want to be like you, Lord. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now.